It's funny that there are certain stories and things in our lives that really stick with us or things that we remember really well and other things uh, that we just don't remember at all. Like I'll give you an example for me. So when I was about, well, when I turned nine, I probably couldn't tell you a specific thing about my ninth birthday. Like I mean, it's probably a cake, just had a party with some friends, probably my backyard. But as for any specifics, I can't really remember anything about that day besides I turned nine. But two weeks, exactly two weeks before my ninth birthday, there's a day that I really remember, and I remember it really well. So on this day, um, let's start with, it was a Tuesday, so I remember that, so it was a school day. Uh, I remember where I was. Uh, I was out on the playground, it was lunch, and I remember what I was doing, what game I was playing. And I also remember who gave me the news. It was a kid who um, went home for lunch every day and he heard something on the news that day. And I also remember that this news was on the news every, for the rest of the day and for every day uh, remaining in that week. Because that Tuesday, for just two weeks before my ninth birthday, that was September 11th, 2001. Um, I was eight years old at the time, turning nine, so a lot of it and the importance of the meaning, that probably went right over my head. Uh, but it's funny, though, that in my first year in seminary, and so when I'm in my mid-20s, in my first class, September 11th, and the Christian response to it actually came up, and it came up this way. So there was an American pastor, um, and he was on one of the major news networks. It doesn't really matter if it was Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. But he went on the news, and he gave his interpretation of the Christian response to the USA and all their allies' invasion of Afghanistan in response to the 9-11 attacks. And what he said was something like this, that he justified it because those that live by the sword die by the sword. What it means, if you haven't heard this before, is that it means that if a person lives a life of violence, then they should expect to be repaid with violence, and they will die because of that violence and that lifestyle that, that they, they live. So because of this, the US government's decision to invade Afghanistan along with Canada was justified, and it was biblical for doing so. So you may notice, actually, that that verse that I said right there, that those that live by the sword die by the sword, did not come up on your screen above or in front of you um, with a book, a chapter, and a verse number. And that's because I want to do a little bit of Bible trivia here. So I'm going to give you four options from the list here, a multiple choice style. And we're going to play a little who said this line or who, uh, who did it for this line, that those that live by the sword die by the sword. So option A, is it... God commanding Joshua to put the Canaanites to death in their genocidal conquest of the promised land. B, Jacob and his sons deceiving an entire tribe of men to get circumcised and then slaughtering these men and stealing their wives and property while they were healing. Is it C, God letting by his own hands the Red Sea to swallow up the Egyptian army pursuing the Israelites so that, and I quote, not so much as one of them remained. Or D, None of the above. So think for a second. If you said option D, you're actually correct. So many people think of God of the Old Testament as the angry God, the violent God. He's smiting and killing um, all around. And it's Jesus, the God of the New Testament, who is our loving God, who is um, turning his cheek when someone would strike one of them. And he gives himself um, in sacrifice on the cross instead of responding in violence. It's this old versus new, anger versus love. 
But the answer is still D, that none of the above. And, the tr and this is the verse about the sword, um, and the, those that live by the sword, die by the sword. This verse is actually red letter Bible in Jesus' own words. It's not even paraphrased by someone else. We can actually read this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And to say the least, I'd say this is pretty upsetting. Like, how can I put this into terms? For those of you that are maybe Star Wars fans, I kind of feel like Obi-Wan Kenobi here when he's just um, fought Anakin, who's turning into Darth Vader. Anakin was supposed to be the chosen one, the one who'd bring balance to the Force, not leave it in darkness. And, we're fe and I feel right here after reading this, like Jesus is supposed to be love, not violence. So how can he say something so violent in what he is telling his followers? And I don't think it's an understatement to say that this rocks our faith to its core. Because we're supposed to love others, even our enemies, and care for the sick, not slaughter them while they heal. Maybe God was an angry God in the past, but Jesus changed that, didn't he? But if even Jesus can be violent or say violent things like Yahweh, then really we can ask this question of what is our faith even? Are the people who criticize Christianity for being old-fashioned, violent, exclusionary, and the list goes on, are they actually right and justified in saying that? Because some people reading this verse would, um, that Jesus said would rather just not think about it. But the problem is, is that Jesus doesn't even make it easy to, to do that because he doubles down on it in the same gospel for Matthew in chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword, again. I personally do not believe that Jesus is a bad guy or God's a bad God, um, like the angry and demanding pagan wooden idols and stone idols that they worshipped and offered sacrifices to and made oaths to in order to get something out of them. I do not believe that one bit. But the thing is, we cannot avoid the Old Testament in Bible, biblical violence that's present throughout it, that it's glorified when it's done against some people, or the anger of God in other places in the Bible. We absolutely have to ask questions like, is God violent and angry, or is God peaceful and loving? So to address this issue, there are two things I think we need to do to lay a framework to start with these giant questions that we want to answer. And the first one is to not avoid them. Some people would say it's easier to just not read these parts of the Bible or to just ignore the problematic parts of the Bible. And that may work temporarily for some people, but it doesn't last forever because ignoring those hard parts just allows the tension to build over time. And there are honestly people who've made their entire livelihoods and careers out of writing things like why God is not great or why religion, um, in their view, is just primitive humans' uh, superstition because of things like this in, um, that are hard things in our Bible. And the thing is, I think that we may be just as guilty as them in this practice that I think is bad because what they've done is they've only looked at the negative sides and the bad aspects of the Bible but if we've only read the good parts, then we're really just as guilty as them for the same issue. Both are not good. So to gain a really good sense of understanding, we need to take the bad with the good and understand the full picture that God's painting here. 
we can't look at the Bible through the smallest pinhole and expect to get the big picture. So here's the second mistake we need to avoid. It is overemphasizing the differences between the Old and the New Testament, effectively making two gods. The Christian faith um, is centered around um, God in three parts. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are one. And it's one of our great mysteries of faith in God. Some early Christians chose actually not to follow the Old Testament and just to focus on the Jesus part in the New Testament. Um, this heresy was actually called the Martian heresy, not Martian as like Martians from Mars, but Martian as after a person named Martian. But keen followers of Jesus may remember this specific verse that he made very clear in the greatest of all sermons from the Sermon of the Mount, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And not only did he say that, but he lived it as well, quoting the Old Testament regularly throughout his life whether it was from Deuteronomy while he was tested in the desert or whether it was from the Psalms while he was on the cross or in all the prophecies that he alluded to in his preaching and teaching. There is no New Testament in Jesus without the Old Testament in Yahweh. You cannot and should not even try to separate them because they're from the same source. So with these two points, that we should not avoid them, that is the violence of the Old Testament and... um, or in the Bible in general, and we should not overemphasize the difference between um, God of the New Testament and God of the Old Testament. Let's really start to explore all the ways that the violence and the anger in the Old Testament exists. So I have three ways that we're going to look at this today, and I think the best place to start is to look at it chronologically with a story that probably a lot of people are familiar with, or have at least heard of it before. And it is one of the potentially most sickening and gross things that could have happened in the Bible, but it didn't. This is the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. So in this story, God called Abraham to go on a journey and offer his own son as a sacrifice to God. Sacrifices, um, is, and the term sacrifice is very foreign to our modern 21st century years. But what's important about sacrifice that we should understand is that in ancient times, sacrifices were something that every average person could understand. That we do not practice sacrifice rituals in modern times. We shouldn't just circle them in red as like bads, because it's not bad or good. That's not the way we we should be looking at it. It's just a practice that ancient people understood. And God spoke to people like Abraham in a way that they would understand. Far too many people, I think, make this mistake of thinking that the Bible was written to us. Because honestly, it was not. The Bible was spoken long before it was written, and it was written in ancient languages like Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic long before it was translated to a way that we could read it in our modern 21st century language so that us as contemporary people would understand it. The Bible may not have been written to us, but it is for us. And God has always spoken into people's lives in a way that they can understand. So let's look at this example of the story of Abraham and Isaac from Genesis chapter 22, from verse 9. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I do not believe there is anybody who can read this um, story from Genesis chapter 22 the first time without at very least uttering yikes under their breath the first time that they read it. It is true that we know from this um, text that it's a test, because that's how Genesis 22 starts. But we've got to remember that Abraham didn't have the text. This was his life story, so he did not know that this was like a test that he was going to get pulled out of at the last second. He's just a guy who God's been moving around from place to place saying, Abraham, have faith. I will provide for you. Your reward is going to be great, but you need to have faith. Faith even when I'm telling you to sacrifice your own son. So don't get me wrong here. I'm not being naive to say that child or human sacrifice is okay, even in ancient times. And if we skip forward a few chapters, we're actually going to find out that Yahweh, Old Testament God, is very not okay with the human and child sacrifice that existed in that, those ancient times. And if we remember just one week ago to Pastor Dave's sermon, where he talked about uh, Manasseh, God was also not very happy with Manasseh and his child sacrifice, the, son, the sacrifice of his son. But let's look at the context of this really ancient time um, of what Abraham existed. Abraham at our best guess, existed around 2000 BC. So if we think about that, then Abraham is at least as far before Jesus as we are from Jesus right now, living just after 2000 AD. This story is really, really old, but God makes two things very clear. One, that the practices, practices of human and child sacrifice that the cultures all around Abraham uh, practiced. They aren't going to fly with God. I am different. And two, when the chips are on the table and there is a sacrifice to be made, it is going to be from God. I will provide. When Abraham had faith, it was Yahweh who provided. The Lord will provide. And I'm not even going to attempt to jump into the, the idea right now that this pretty heavily alludes to the fact that we know later that God is going to do the last uh, human sacrifice with giving himself in Jesus. And that is a whole other story of love that we're not going to jump into today because that's such a big story. But right here, what God is saying to Abraham is, I know the violent ways you're used to, so I'm going to speak to you personally in a way that you understand, and I'm going to show you how different I am God speaks to us in the way that we can understand. 
You may have also heard this very wise line from Pastor Dave in a previous sermon, including last week, that ancient people weren't stupid. They were just ancient. They weren't dumb, but they did live in a violent, dangerous world, and they understood violence. So when we see violence in the Bible, it's good to not automatically get our guard up and think, nope, bad, not even going to consider that or this part. Just going to move right over it. God communicated with Abraham, his prophets, and to us through ancient people who did live violent and dangerous lives, sometimes much more than our own. So yes, there is absolutely violence recorded in the Bible. But we should also not think that the recording of violence in the Bible means to glorify it. Because if we were to look at text from our contemporary era, if we were to look at a newspaper that recorded a crime or some violent thing that happened in our city, we would not think that the newspaper is glorifying it by including it there. That doesn't make sense. The Bible does not glorify all violence that is included in it too when it is recording the lives of ancient people. So, that's the first thing. We're not going to avoid interacting with the Old Testament now just because there are some violent parts. That is great. But here is the next challenge we face. What about the parts that are even harder to reconcile where God is involved and where violent things actually did happen? They weren't, like in Abraham's example, stopped at the last second before they could happen. Things that violently happened or things that are just so ridiculously violent that they don't even make sense to us. The second thing that we should not do is just to reject portions of the Old Testament because it does not fit with what my perception of God should be like. We should all work towards the humility to admit that we don't see as God sees because his way of thinking and seeing is higher than ours. But humility is very hard and takes practice. We see a small section of the full picture that God is painting and often when we see a flaw that we think is in God, it is more likely to be a flaw in our, or a limitation in our perception of God. So we can only see so much. Now that last story that I told you about Abraham, I think is, for lack of a better term, a doozy. Um, so let's have a slightly humorous, but still violent story before we jump into our last big doozy. So join me in the book of Second Kings chapter two, from verse 23. He went up there to Bethel, and while he was going up, uh, up on the way, some small boys came out from the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out from the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Okay, can we just stop for a second and just look at this story? In the middle of his Google Maps directions here of Bethel to Mount Carmel and Samaria, there is just a sec one little sentence there that 40-odd people got mauled by bears. Okay, this sounds a little weird. Um, the he in this story is Elisha. Um, he's the successor to the prophet Elijah. And as happens with many men, with myself, it seems like it's happening faster and faster with every haircut I get. But as I get older, it seems like there's fewer and fewer hairs on our head. And you know what? In this story right here, I can somewhat resonate with Elijah here, or Elisha here. He's pretty angry that's basically some youths harassed him, calling him baldy. Because that's what they're calling him there, bald head. He's calling him baldy. Now, I, 
I pray to God that if somebody ever calls me baldy someday, that God will calm my heart so that I do not pray to God to send bears after those people. But in this story, this is basically what Elisha did. So this really puts us in this place where we have to say, really? Like, is God in the business of sending bears to attack people who call others names? Like, this puts us right back at square one of thinking that, yep, God definitely sounds like he's pretty violent, and actually he's got a pretty messed up sense of humor here. But, you're going to have a however here, and this is a really big however. Reading this story, as with when we were reading uh, the story of Isaac and Abraham and the sacrifice, we have to read between the lines and listen a lot more carefully to what's going on here. It's a test for us to not just reject the story of the Old Testament and pretend it didn't happen because it sounds bad or because it sounds difficult. That's not going to suffice. And partly, our confusion here I don't believe is our fault. It's just a limitation of our language here. Um, because this, these have gone through a lot of translations. The small boys that were calling him Baldy. In our English Standard Version of the Bible, they are called small boys. And this implies, really, that this is just a group of kindergartners, basically, harassing the prophet, so he sent bears after them. Definitely not cool. However, the Hebrew word that's used there, Nahar, is actually written, is used far more times in the Bible, 76 times, to refer to young men. So let's look at the situation logically. Is it more likely that outside on the outskirts of the city, it's 42 kindergartners, young boys, harassing Elisha? Or is it a group of young men who may be harassing him before they're going to do something worse to him, like rob him and beat him? In one of my roles here at Westside, I lead the, um, the senior high youth program. And I guarantee you that if I start leading your children out into the outskirts of the town and start harassing people, there's going to be some pretty big questions that I have to answer for and I'm going to be responsible for. So I do not believe that this is alluding to um, a group of small boys harassing Elisha. It's more likely the young men. Still, this story sounds really bad in, 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 and in unjust. Because here's our next point. Yahweh is willing to punish individuals to protect the weak and preserve life. Not only is God willing to protect an innocent older man like Elisha and preserve his life from a gang of over 40 young men, but God is measured in his punishment. Is not doesn't do too much. The text says that they were torn, but not killed. And I think that we should interpret it this way, that the Bible is very specific when people are killed in recording it. And I don't think there is any reason to believe that these individuals were killed. Otherwise, it would say so. But when the weak are threatened, God steps in and God steps up to protect the weak and the innocent, to protect their lives. So, now that we've done those first two stories, it is time for our final one to look at the, the not-as-nice example that I mentioned before. So remember how I said if we jump forward a little bit from the sacrifice of Isaac, that God was really not happy with child and human sacrifice. Well, this is where we are now with some of the worst examples of the people who did practice that, the Canaanites. Um, these are the people that land, uh, lived in the land of Canaan, where the Israelites were uh, leaving exile from Egypt and were seeking to settle in the Promised Land. And this is one of the all-time greatest, 
most difficult to reconcile with examples of a violent episode in the Bible. And it is exceptionally difficult to reconcile with because it is nothing less than a genocide, at least how it's written. The successor to Moses, Joshua, was the Israelite general who led his armies in the conquest of Canaan. And through hardships, successes, and some failures, they were successful in the conquest of the, of the Promised Land in establishing what we think of as ancient Israel. But we have to ask the question, how can we, right now, reconcile such gross violence, warring, murder, and the conquest of a whole people from their lands to take over it? It just does not flow with our teaching from Jesus, who taught us to turn our cheeks when we're struck and to love our enemies. It does not flow at all. But that right there is exactly it. We are called to love our enemies just as the Israelites were. That Jesus said to love your enemies was not something revolutionary for God. And you heard me right there, was not something revolutionary If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. This is from Proverbs hundreds of years before Jesus. This is one of the core reasons that thinking of the Old Testament Yahweh as being different from the New Testament Jesus and the God of New Testament, that that is wrong and unfair in so many ways. What Jesus taught came from the Old Testament. We are called to love our enemies because love turns hearts and softens even the hardest of hearts. Yet, there are consequences when one makes themselves not just an enemy of a people, but an enemy of God. While God's message is to love the stranger and foreigner in your lands, the Canaanites pillaged, raided, and murdered the Israelites while they were lost and weak in the desert. While God's message is of the the worth of life, the Canaanites offered um, their own children as sacrifices um, to wooden and stone, lifeless idols. When the weak are threatened, the oppressors have made themselves enemy of not just the weak, but of God. And Yahweh was willing to use violence to punish individuals and nations to protect the innocent, the weak, and to preserve life, which in this case, the weak were a bunch of refugees fleeing from slavery and they needed protection. Sometimes God seems to take a long time to respond when we are hurting or where we can see hurt elsewhere in the world. It just seems like it takes so long. But when I see this and read this, it makes me think that when God is waiting, he is being so patient in his love to give us and other people that time to repent, that time to change our hearts, see our wrong, and help others. And it's the same grace that God shows us, that grace that is so powerful when we sin and when we hurt others, that God is patient and loving and kind and gives us that time to repent because we need that grace. Otherwise, there would be no grace for us. It is far too easy to judge God and classify Yahweh as the Old Testament as a violent and angry God. But it takes a lot more humility to try to put ourselves into God's really big shoes and see how patient God really is. 
far more than our, nation, or our nature would allow us to be, even if we were trying our hardest. God of the Old Testament allows violence where is necessary, and it is measured and limited to protect the weak and the innocent, even when it looks harsh to us. And what that sounds like to me is integrity, because it is doing the right thing, even when everyone else thinks that it is wrong, it is harsh, it is bad, but still doing the right thing. So I think that we should return to the verse that started this whole problem about violence for us, about Jesus in swords. So we're going to go back to that Matthew chapter 26 from verse 47. Um, right before the, this is from right before the arrest of Jesus. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus told his own follower, who was trying to protect him, to sheathe his sword. Because those that take the sword die by the sword. It isn't a justification for violence, but a warning against it. And I chose this verse because, like that pastor who used it to justify uh, more, so many people see the Bible this way, through a pinhole, looking at an individual verse that does not paint the picture, the whole, or the, the whole picture, doesn't allow us to see it, is an isolated individual verse on its own that if it was violent, well, then it must mean that Yahweh the Old Testament is either bad or he's okay with it, as long as it's benefiting my perception of the Bible. So this brings us to our bottom line. If reading one verse out of context can be so misleading, imagine how insufficient in understanding the, so the story it is to read only one small part of the Bible compared to the whole thing, only reading the Jesus parts in the New Testament. Yahweh has such extreme love for not only his people, but the poor, the starving, the downtrodden, even different cultures from his own people, that he uses violence only as a last resort to protect the innocent from oppressors. He discourages violence when there is any other option. From Ezekiel chapter 18, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Turn and live. Repent from sin and live. Turn from using the Bible to justify our preconceived thoughts and let us experience life as God intended for us. Because God's message is life-bringing as his breath breathed life into existence. And he is good and just. God is because he's being patient, but willing to act firm when the lives of the weak and the innocent are threatened. 
And we should not uh, shy away from the uncomfortable stories of the Bible um, because it's scary and it's a dark place. Because if it weren't for Jesus would go into that dark place for two days, then he would not have been able to rise on the third day. So what this is, I think, is an example of God balancing his divine ideal with our human limitations. God's ideal is so perfect, so good, because he is so good, and his ideal of nonviolence shows his true loving heart. And if this still doesn't quite make sense why God would allow for divine violence against people, then I have a really short story from Jesus that I think has a very similar underlying theme in the story. The Pharisees challenged Jesus one day on the legality of divorce. Um, Let no man separate what God has joined. So explain to us why Moses allowed certificates of divorce. And Jesus answered this way, that is because of you. It is because of human hard hearts. It's because of, so we can say it's us. God knows that the ideal is a lifelong marriage, but allows for the divorce because the Israelites ask for it out of their selfish desires and because it's better than the alternative. It's like when Jesus also says weird things like, if your eye causes you to sin, it's better to pluck it out. It's such a wild exaggeration to show how far what God wants for us has to be from sin. That a little hyperbole in these stories is an effective teaching tool. So it's God's ideal versus our human real, and that's what falls short. God's main idea for today is that this idea of nonviolence, but our human reality is that the weak have needed protection from, the impress- from oppressors under many circumstances. That the Bible records many of them, and God has stepped up. We can be very thankful now to the Father that we do not live the dangerous and violent lives that our ancestors lived. But because we are free, from mostly free from that threat. I believe that we have a duty in following Christ to abide by that nonviolence because that nonviolence is how we are really, truly closest to God's own heart. Father God in heaven, thank you for your loving message and your revolutionary message for us. Pray that you would guide us to... um, turn from our hard hearts towards loving others and not to live lives of violence by the sword. I pray that we would see these stories of the Bible and not turn away from them and run from them, but we can feel confidence in how you guide us to humble ourselves so that we can truly learn from you and live lives as you intend for us, away from our sinful selves. And I pray that you be with us through all this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.